Hello, my name is Dotun Holo Poroku, and this is Building the Future Podcast. I believe the African story will be written by Africans, and there are people crafting the narrative now. This podcast is a series of conversations with people whose ideas and work is shaping the African future. My guest today is Tokumbo Ishmael. She's the co-founder and managing director of Alitia Capital, an African-focusing part investment management and advisory firm. Alitia's investments include businesses that enable the provision of financial services to the unbanked and unbanked through traditional and branchless banking models. Alitia Capital is that impact investor that focuses both on doing social good but also having good return on investment. Tokumbo Ishmael is an alumnus of London Business School and and the University of London. She's a chartered financial analyst and she used to be an investment banker uh, before starting Alithia. She's a member of CFA Institute. She sits on several boards in different organizations across Africa, including First City Monument Bank in Nigeria and the African Venture Capital Association. Tukumbo, welcome to Building the Future podcast. Thank you for that. Uh, welcome, Dr. It's good to have you, actually. And I normally start this conversation to my guests, asking them about their journey to venture capital or to investment. And I'm going to start with that before we dive into a lot of things I want to discuss with you today. So how did you get here? Yeah, so first of all, I'll say... Um, Thank you for, for having me. And I'll also add that um, Althea Capital is a private equity and venture capital firm. And indeed, we have sought to drive inclusion strategies, particularly along the financial inclusion side, energy inclusion, affordable housing inclusion, and more recently, driving a gender diversity uh, mandate across the continent. And I, I can speak about that uh, a little bit more. So, how did I get here? How did I? How did the journey get me to where I am today? Speaking to you. So my background, really, I started out life as a computer scientist, developing software, building computers. Way back before computers became um, a popular accessory um, as we have it today, through our mobile phones and uh, other larger devices. And when I when I started, then I. We spent some time, like I said, developing software, developing financial software, in fact. So, you know, even though fintech is something that we talk about today, it really is something that has existed um, for decades. The, we, the financial services firms have always used technology in one form or the other. And um, that was an area that I, I started out working, developing software for financial services firms, but also um, dismantling and building computers. So, very familiar with software and hardware. And part of that journey, when I finished um, my computer studies, which is what I studied as an undergrad and postgrad, I landed um, myself at an oil company, um, which today I'm, I'm not sure if it, it still exists in its form then, but anyway, it was an independent um, oil company, which if you can even believe it, didn't have any computers <laughs> on uh, desktop computers um, at the time. Interesting. And in fact, yeah, no, it's very interesting. At the at the time, most large firms, banks, oil companies, large corporates, they really worked with what we call mainframe computers. And I won't get technical, but let's just say the client server uh, philosophy that we see today has been around for a, a, a long time. 
in any event, the oil company didn't have a didn't have laptops or any PCs on anybody's desks. We all worked off what we called dumb terminals at the time. And I made a proposal to the board back then to put a PC on everybody's desk. I think at the time there were, we were about 500 in number, um, between 500 and at least 700 um, employees. That's and a bold move. That must be capital yeah. intensive as well. Bold move, capital intensive. And given that not everybody had computers, you can imagine what happened at the board. What there, There's a particular communication at the board that really stuck with me, which is why I went back to, to that time. And we're talking nearly 30 years ago now, so it's quite quite a time. And the, the boards were intrigued with what I had presented, me and uh, my team and my, my boss in particular at the time. But the finance guy, the chief financial officer was like, are you kidding me? That's a lot of money. <laughs> anyway, it got thrown out on its first uh, presentation. And it really struck me that something that we certainly as computer scientists, software developers, um, computer support technology groups saw as devices and an expense that would make the company more efficient. I should say that this was in the UK. Our office was in London and there were offices in Scotland and different parts of Scotland um, at that. So having personal computers was definitely meant to improve our efficiency and, you know, really help the bottom line of the company. But clearly as uh, technology first people, we, we didn't uh, convince enough on the finance side. Anyway, it, the proposal eventually got through. Uh, we went back with a presentation, learned the lingo to present to the board and uh, get that done. On, on what like, ground was it sent out? Just want to maybe pause a bit on that because it's very hard for a lot of millennials to listening to this. You think, we're talking about 30, maybe 30 years ago. We're talking about a large expense and... To have everybody in the company have a computer was a large expense, even for an old company that has the cash. But also people didn't really see the, the benefit of everybody having computers. Why can't the computer department and the people in finance have computers? Why can't people share dumb terminals? Why can't, why can't? So many Interesting. things that to take for granted yeah. the, the, the activity and the efficiency that comes from these devices but I can tell you back then uh, that was not the case in any event that's one of the main reasons why I ended up going to business school because I was like well if the finance person is the person wielding the sword I want that language Interesting. and so that's how I ended up um, going to business school and then from there um, going into investment banking and from investment banking coming into um, my current sector for investing. That's a fascinating story, actually, how you, you felt, okay, I, I might be doing something in the back office, but the guys in the front office are the one making decisions and that might not be good for the long term of the business. So I, I would rather just go and be the front office person. And then you well, move. just about front office, though. It was okay. about financial rationale. Right. Sustainability of the decision. It wasn't necessarily about because finance then you could argue is a back office function, right? But the ability to reason and present a sustainable argument on the basis of numbers was something I felt that even if you have the rationale for why an action is relevant and um, good for a company the non-financial and the financial go together. So I've always had that view of 
you know, okay, as financial, you can be very rational and thinking and, you know, lay out the numbers. Mm. The non-financial also has to play a role. But very early on, I knew that non-financial alone would never cut it. And so I wanted the, the language of finance. And after business school, you ended up working in investment banking before you went into VC? That's correct. And what was that transition for you? Because I've, I've met a lot of people as well who started their financial career after maybe MBA with investment banking, which seems to take a large proportion of uh, students from MBA class. But then people then move into, sometimes move into private equity. Is that a natural progression for a lot of people in maybe investment banking want to go to PE and maybe raise their own fund? Or you just find yourself along that line? No, um, in fact, um, it's interesting because, I mean, there are a few people that, that make that journey. Uh, for me, the journey happened um, because I was also on Wall Street at the time of the, the internet boom. Every firm that put an E dash in front of their name was raising lots of capital. Now, remember, because I have um, a technology background, my provenance is in computer science, because of that, I was also attractive to some Silicon Valley firms. And so I ended up going from, well, first of all, I was attractive to the, within the investment bank, to the technology and media uh, practice and found myself in New York and from New York, also in San Francisco, but also then meeting some of the tech firms that um, were very active at the time, some that still exist even. And so I ended up joining a Silicon Valley a startup. So I worked in Silicon Valley with a startup looking at their business development. And fortuitously, the, the owner of that startup, who was um, very good at what he did, was able to also uh, create an exit at one of the uh, most active times in the market, March 2000. And people that mm. know that period know that that was um, the time of um, the internet sort of bust yeah. um, and he was able to exit his startup at that time. So for me, it was a great place to be to see that action at the time and to and and, and that startup was a, was a fintech actually. It was an internet uh, wallet company, which is very comparable to the mobile wallets that we have today. But at the time, internet wallets were the thing. And I enjoyed that roller coaster of a ride and decided that I wanted to be on the other side because I was within a, a startup and then I wanted to be on the side of those that were making decisions about uh, the startups or the investing side. And there began my journey with BC Tech. We're currently going through a very pivotal, disrupting time change now with COVID. Now, it's disrupting a lot of things, both culturally and also in terms of investment. But a lot of people are making similarities or trying to draw lessons from what happened in the late 90s and early 2000s with the internet.com bust and how that change a lot of ways in which people invest. You are able to witness that as, as a participant to some extent. What are the applicable lessons that you think someone like us who are in there then could actually glean from that time now as an investor? Well, uh, yeah, it's, th there are many parallels that, that one can draw, actually. And, you know, I found myself, I found myself thinking about this uh, quite a lot. And when I think about what the success factors for those that end up um, 
um, survive in is that they're able to do the, the the entrepreneurs, the leaders are able to do a couple of things. One is flexibility, right? So they're able to be flexible, and that starts with them going back to basics and saying, you know, what it re- what really is our core, what is our resin debt, what is it that we really exist to do, and. So they go back to basics, they focus, and from that position of focusing, they're also able to look at the environment and say, okay, so how can we adapt? How can we be flexible to uh, make an opportunity out of the current uh, challenge? So it's that uh, laser-like focus which enables them to be able to rethink and reimagine themselves to be innovative and therefore flexible to adapt to the the situation. And that requires entrepreneurs to also be self-aware, aware of where they have developmental areas mm. and therefore might need to uh, collaborate um, to fill up their deficiencies and also aware of their powers and where they can amplify those powers to uh, innovate and reimagine themselves. What about investors? I know there has been a lot of forth and, and, and actually maybe worries as well about how this might affect returns for those who are currently investing now and how it might actually also impact the, the lifetime of the fund and the, and the return circle. And maybe the first question, how does that impact the, the fund that you are in then or, or most of the fund then? And what are the pilots that we can draw now and the lessons that we can apply? First of all, um, back then, um, I was... The, the 2000 dot-com bust, I was within a firm that had received investment, but that firm was attractive to another uh, firm. Actually, AOL bought uh, the firm out because it provided payment infrastructure for that firm. So it was an ingredient that was useful. So at the end of the day, you have to reevaluate yourself and think about what is the value that I'm bringing to the table. Mm. Uh, just as an aside, during this lockdown period, everybody's rethinking the value of anything that they purchase or use um, because we've all been uh, forced to uh, live and work a certain way. And what that has caused us to do is to strip away that w- which we might find excess or frivolous. And therefore, consumers, everybody, and when I say consumers, I mean that in its broadest sense, whether that's people that are buying um, goods, retail, those, whether it's wholesalers that are buying from um, somewhere up further up the chain, whether that's investors that are making investment, they're, they're consuming something, their consumption is around their investments and their portfolio companies. Everybody is a consumer and everybody's reevaluating the value they get, which means that someone further up the value chain from you is also reevaluating the value that you bring uh, to the table. So being able to understand what your value is at this time and where you can pivot on that value is very um, important. So at that time, the company I was with was able to demonstrate its value to another company that needed that jigsaw in its own operating puzzle. Today, as an investor, we as we are still investing at Alithia Capital. And what the situation has shown us is that it further amplifies our raison d'etre that we seek to make both financial and developmental returns um, by specifically making it possible for a broader percentage of the population to have access to essential services. So 
essential services for many the value is clear for them what they're getting from that essential service and because we're focused in that area we know that we still need to continue to invest because people still need access to finance uh people still need access to healthcare people still need access to energy to electrify their homes and so the value chain of those different services people still need access to education so all these things are still essential and for we we see that we play a role in um, fueling the development of those businesses within those sectors and so for us we continue to invest and i think every firm every investor is looking at you know what is the value of that which they are investing in I want to maybe shift gear a little bit and talk about Alifia Capital and talk about why you started it, the thesis. And you alluded to that a little bit. But I also want to maybe go deeper into why you emphasize at the beginning that it's both PE and VC and how you're making that differentiation. Yes. So first of all, in terms of why capital. So as I've said before, I was on Wall Street. I was in Silicon Valley and I did make good money. And I moved to Nigeria and was working with an oil company and was still making uh, good money and this was after I had uh, spent some time at Oreos um, a private equity firm and at Oreos I saw that some of the businesses that required funding were still early stage but they were essential uh for the development of our um economy and I wanted to find a way to invest in some of those sorts of companies and just to mention a couple um one was a, a payments company that's very well known today but went back then it was a startup and investing in it was at odds with the firm that I was with uh, at the time one was um, a telecoms infrastructure a company again this was at the early days of the mobile cycle and so not everybody saw how important that um, telecoms infrastructure company would be so even though it was also a startup it was overlooked and another was a startup that was looking at how we could produce cards uh, for banks to issue to their clients and again back then the penetration for for cards was even much lower than it is today even even though the penetration for cards is still not where it needs to be in our economy here in Nigeria for example and other parts of Africa it when, was when very was this? low back then what, what year was this, this? Uh, was 2003 so around 2003 so um these were all startups but the thesis of the firm I worked with did not um support investing in them and so i've always seen that sometimes even if you're investing in established companies as a private equity firm there's room to think about where you need to invest in um venture capital in invest venture capital in early stage companies and so that's why i made um that distinction earlier that we do both um we do venture capital very selectively but especially where we see it can serve our purpose for uh, financial inclusion and we did that for example with Paga when we were looking to drive financial inclusion Paga was a complete startup and didn't we didn't have any institutional investors but we saw how it could help us further our um, mandate in that area so that's why I made that distinction and um coming back to why I started um Alethea again was in Nigeria I was making good money but I could also see much of the poverty around and 
how the firms, the, the, the focus of investment firms was in things that they could readily see that there was a paying market, big, big dollar, big Naira paying market, so the top 1% of the population. But I began to look and I, I, I'd come across the, the, the back in 2000s, the early 2000s, the, the concept of the bottom of the pyramid and the riches at the bottom of the pyramid and began to think about what if you sought to develop products and services for the masses? A, you have volume, but also you're lifting more people out of the bottom uh, segment of the economy and you're you're really helping to uh, fuel the economy. And so I began to think about what kinds of sectors those were and settled on the fact that if people had even just access to the essential services, by providing them, ac- them access, you could still make um, a good return, good financial return, and you could have developmental impact. And so back in 2007, that's when I started Althea Capital on the back of that, before the concept of impact investing, which is now the shortcut phrase for being able to achieve financial impact and other returns at the same time, so financial, social, economic, uh, developmental, etc. This is a very good way to delve into the, the meat of some of the stuff I want to discuss with you for the rest of this conversation. It's based on a piece that you wrote recently on LinkedIn about impact investing, profit and purpose. And I wanted to actually talk through that with you and maybe understand your thoughts on impact investing, particularly on striking a balance between the dichotomy you express in that piece between the purist approach, which is social non-profit enterprise and the implicit finance force approach as well, which look like a dichotomy that is always at loggers with each other. I, I wanted to maybe talk me through that and, and explain it deeper. Yeah. So, you know, going back to my point about when you create products and services for a broader section of the uh, population, let's look at it from a finance point of view. What you're doing is you're, you're creating products that Yes, can meet the needs of, let me call them the richer in society. But if you really look at the design of your products, you're also able to design your products to meet the needs of the lower income. And to illustrate that, I'll talk about a project that we facilitated investment for in the clean cooking space. You you mentioned that earlier. Now, we worked with an energy company, an indigenous energy company, who, when we first approached them, had a gas product, 12 kg gas products that it was selling to those that had cars. So if you have a car and you're able to go and swap out your gas, then of course you're already in a certain bracket of society. But it was reaching the 1% of society at that time. Let's, let's roughly call them the, the top 1%. And But it wasn't able to adequately serve the broader masses that don't have a car that required the ability to buy uh, gas closer to their homes, not drive into a forecourts to do that. And that was where it was competing with some cheaper products that were harmful, whether that's firewood, for example. And just by working with uh, that company to, to bring in that impact consciousness and say, you know, if we create a smaller 
cylinder, 3 kg. At the time, these were not as prevalent as you see them today. If we create these, and if we create a distribution channel that results in retailers who are 10 minutes away from the homes of the masses in, in those um, dense areas. So we make it accessible by supplying those retailers these 3 kg cylinders. We make it affordable because we've right-sized it. They don't have to get into a car. They don't have to log around the 12 kg and they can just walk you know, a few minutes to, to buy this. And we make it safe for them, safer than the firewood that causes indoor air pollution and other atrocities that go with that. If we do that, we will increase your market. And so from our point of view, we were looking for some financial returns for sure, but we were also looking at some of the social and developmental elements of clean cooking uh, fuel, reducing indoor air pollution, which, by the way, is, is has a higher death rate than malaria does, um, which is a whole other podcast, perhaps. <laughs> so we, we wanted to address those. Clean cooking fuel, uh, reduce indoor air pollution, reduce deforestation from uh, use of firewood, etc. The The company wanted to increase its market share, right? Now, that company is very happy with the way it was able to address a, a greater population and make its revenues from that product more sustainable because now it's not just focused on uh, the fickle nature of the richer part of the population, but it has a more stable base by also expanding to the bottom of the pyramid. But at the same time, our intentionality of addressing some of those health factors and environmental factors sat side by side with them being able to increase their profits. So when you hear that, do you still think it's so much of a dichotomy? It's about intention. It's about intention, but also about scalability in sustainable initiatives and enterprises. I agree with you. And and that is the basis of our own thesis as well at Novastar, where we invest in businesses that are solving problems for the low income mass market. And there is that intentionality of going after the people that are earning less and and helping them to be able to have access to services that probably don't have access to or make it affordable for them. But the challenge has always been, and and I see that sometimes with the Nigerian entrepreneur versus, or, or West African entrepreneur versus East African entrepreneur, where a West African entrepreneur will not express that intentionality of, of the social impact of their business. They will talk in terms of, we're here to make money, we're here to get market share, and we want to be the billion-dollar business. And whereas the East African business will be positioning or pitching their business as social good first, before, and then they, they can then we can make money later. And and it seems to be a bit of tension. Uh, maybe it has to do with the expression. Well, I don't have a I don't have a problem with an entrepreneur who wants to push the boundaries to profit maximize. But as an investor, my intentionality is to help them see how they can be conscious with their business. You see, the problem is that businesses have had a bad rap. Private enterprises have had a bad rap because there's been this thought that it's all about profit maximization. But if you expand your view to stakeholder value creation. The the shareholder is but one entity in that spectrum. Your employee employees, your community, there are other stakeholders. So if you start out trying with the intentionality of balancing that value creation across 
the stakeholders and not just focus on profit and have a greater purpose, which is part of the wisdom and guide that I bring to some of the entrepreneurs who are like, I just want to make money. It's like, well, actually, there's a greater purpose than that. Mm-hmm. Making money is uh, profit maximization is one, one dimension. There are other dimensions. And, have, and actually, when you think across the other dimensions, you have better innovation and you have a better product and you're able to, to lift the boats for everybody, actually, because you come out with something which is more uh, sustainable and um, has, a, has, has a, a vision that is greater than just um, the profit bottom line. Maybe the question then is, how deep does that go? Because an entrepreneur can say, hey, I am creating jobs through this business and therefore having social impact because these people are getting paid. But I guess what you're talking about, again, reading your piece, is deeper than that. It has to do with the way you make decisions. Yeah. Yes. You see, you can't say, oh, I'm creating jobs and that's fine. And, that's it. And, and, and creating jobs just becomes a byproduct. Yeah. But if you're intentional, you're also thinking about the quality of those jobs. You're thinking about the, the livelihood, the quality of the livelihood of um, the people that are taking up those jobs. And you're not just trying to get away, for example, with just minimum pay, but you're also thinking about the environment and how your products and service has an impact in that respect. How can we create a better product that has environmental benefits, social benefits, and you know, is well governed. And what we've seen with the crisis is that even when people in the past have spoken about ESG, environmental, social, and governance factors, that, and they think that just by putting the label ESG, they've, they've done all the good they can do, we've seen that actually what they've done is, in many cases, focused on more on the governance yeah. side or even greenwashed and focused on the environmental side. And now we're seeing when we delve deeper into the behavior of companies, we see that there's a huge social conscious gap where maybe they're not paying people well, maybe there's, there's slave labor, maybe as soon as the fight of trouble, they're willing to just write them off. And, you know, so or when, their value chain and the suppliers. Them, exactly. Very quickly, just cut it off without thinking broadly yeah. about that S in the ESG. And for us, as impact investors, that intentionality about what their products and services do for people, making it possible for them to get better quality, affordable healthcare, better quality, affordable education, access to financial services where institutions haven't wanted to focus on them because they haven't taken the time to create the products and use the right channels to reach those customers. So for me, it's, it, it, it does go deeper. Yeah. Um, you do need to have a greater purpose. But you, you, and that purpose is very much tied to an intentionality of what you are trying to do. And that goes beyond profit, which alone, which can be actually lazy thinking. And when trouble comes, very quickly reveals those who are actually naked from just focusing on, on profit. I mean, now we're, many people are seeing that the sectors where we, we need to invest in, even if they don't give us the 10x, but are able to give us the 5x, healthcare, education. These are very important sectors, essential sectors. And so for me, we need to be able to balance those aims such that we do have a more conscious investor group, more conscious economy, society. 
the way I've also been thinking about it is there are so many factors that will be shaping the way people do business in the future. And one of them is the climate movement, which is becoming huge, although it's silent now because of the pandemic. But also the pandemic is where the COVID might actually shape people's consciousness around the health impact of businesses. But there's also a factor around the millennials who see work and conceive work differently. You have to enjoy it and you have to treat them well. You have to pay well. And, and there is a lot of that actually that will shape the way entrepreneurs have to build sustainable business of the future. And those kind of waves, we actually make a lot of things different in the way people invest in businesses going forward. And now you actually define what does it mean to build a profitable business? It's not just about the money. Yeah. Let, let me unpack, you've said a lot there, let me unpack some of that. For me, it's not about post-COVID alone. On the environmental side, maybe we've focused too much on that and therefore not really focused on the social side such that we have looked at uh, prioritizing these essential healthcare, education, etc. Yeah. I mean, look at education. People are now seeing how much infrastructure is required within the educational um, sector. But it's more about even without COVID. And let's talk about the fact that we're going to be li- live, probably living with COVID for a while. So it's not even post-COVID. It's, it's reimagining how you continue to operate and live with COVID. But beyond COVID, there are other matters, as you know, in the Nigerian environment whether it's the oil price, whether it's even the lack of infrastructure anyway that we have, the, the, the myriad of issues that we have, the, the social economic gaps, etc. It's about having a business that has a purpose and that is thinking about its different stakeholders. And therefore, it's thinking about a greater purpose that enables it to be a sustainable business. You see, when you think about the greater purpose and you think about um, addressing the needs of your community, your customers, your suppliers, your, employee, your employees, uh, alongside your shareholders. The money also comes because you lift the boat. And yeah. you, you out of that, you have to be more innovative because you're now thinking, how can I better create products and services that can be attractive and accessible to a broader range of people and that can have less of a, a detrimental impact on the environment. We want a sustainable environment. We want uh, better livelihoods and lives um, for the for the masses. And we want to be better governed. And we want to make sure that people have access to, to these essential services. When you have to look at, have an equation that looks at those different factors, what comes out is a better product and service. Yeah. And therefore helps to lift all boats. So for me, it's, it goes beyond, COVID is the crisis today. We don't know mm-hmm. what the crisis is tomorrow. True. You have to be prepared by thinking more deeply about the sustainability of your business and the value that you're creating for your stakeholders. Oh, that's so good. There's so many questions I would love to ask you, but I know that I'm going to bring you back again just at some point. I would love to ask you around questions around board. How, 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 how do you contribute to board? How do you create value there? And how do you manage your fiduciary responsibilities? There's so many questions around how do you do things around, uh, in, in a weak system, ESG responsibilities. But I'm going to end with quick fire and question that I normally ask my guests and two questions. The first one is, which book are you reading at the moment? Uh, or that you've read lately? Which book am I reading at the moment? I am reading some fiction, actually, which um, I, I, I always like to have fiction to hand. 
and I'll come on to the fiction, but I'm reading a book called How Women Rise, which is nonfiction mm. by Sally, her name escaped me, but it's a great book about the, the habits that women have that hold them back. So I'm reading that at the moment. I'm also reading Conscious Capitalism, which I'm uh, very much uh, enjoying. So, yeah, those those are the nonfiction books I'm reading. And I'm smiling because I'm like, do I, should I, do I have to tell him what I'm really reading? <laughs> so you can. Say it's got its roots in Greek mythology. So okay. I'm reading Greek mythology um, at the moment. Okay, and that's there's good. a lot of there's a lot of passion involved. Oh, that's good. Uh, I would love to get the topic of that book, actually. If you don't want to mention it on air, your secret book is Save With Me. I will ask you later after after we drop. No, no, it's fine. It's, 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 not, it's, not, a, it's not a secret at the moment. Um, <laughs> I like Greek mythology, and I'm reading some Greek mythology. Great. The second question is, what view have you changed your mind on recently? Hmm. So... What, what there are a couple of things that I've been thinking of differently, especially now that I've been in lockdown. I've been and I've been in lockdown for longer than most people, and I'm still in lockdown even though Lagos has opened up. Because I when I when I came into I, I was on a trip and I came back to Lagos and I had to self isolate for 14 days, and then at the end of that, that's when Lagos state government um, announced a, a further lockdown. So so I've been in lockdown for quite a bit. So I I mentioned one thing earlier about how you have to think more deeply about the value that you uh, bring to the table. So that's one thing that I've been thinking about. I've been dressing up for my meetings, you know, just to get myself in the frame of mind. So even though sometimes my video is off, I'm more dressed up and ready for meetings just to get my game face on and the other day I the other day I I was like oh I I want to put on a different perfume today and I thought to myself you know there's so many things that we do that pre this lockdown we thought we were doing because we were going out like dressing up or putting on a certain perfume but actually we do them for our own well-being yeah so even though nobody can smell me I just felt better about that perfume. The other thing is, and so this is number three now. So you asked me for one thing that I'm bombarding. The other thing is that, as you've heard and sort of gathered from what what I've said today, I have been steeped in technology long before many people were steeped in technology. So I've always been a fan of um, technology. And so when it came to having a virtual life, it wasn't a big deal for me, as much of a big deal for me as it was for many people. But I realized in this lockdown period that as much as technology enables us to be very efficient, we need the social interaction. We're social animals, we're not robots. And at the beginning of this lockdown, I would say something like, well, you know, now people will want to spend more time virtually in the first week I, I was like wow I could do this I could I can do my exercise virtually I can meet with people I can just be at home I don't have to go out but now mm. in like what seems like I think it's about nearly week eight I feel like um now I'm like well yeah I can do all those things but I want to have the choice as to whether I want to be virtual True. and I definitely don't want to be 
fully virtual and I definitely value the social interaction yeah. that comes in the office or in the entertainment um, other aspects of our lives. And, 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 and I know that I, I'm actually an introvert. Many people don't know that and many people will disagree with that. But I realize that even in my introversion, I won't have the choice to be an intro, introverted as opposed mm. to be forced to be introverted. Same here too, in regards to that choice, actually. As much as I complained a lot last year about the amount of time I spent on an aeroplane traveling, now I'm, I just look forward to be able to have that choice to listen to those hosts. Uh, hostess is telling me about safety drill and just looking at that. I, I really want to have that choice to do that, but now I couldn't. Thank you very much for because in the first week I was all about the virtual. Is it? And yeah. now I'm and eh, nah, I, I, I want I want more <laughs> yeah. I want the You want to have coffee with people and have real meetings. In fact them. I just want to have good coffee, not just coffee with people. <laughs> I just want to have good coffee. I want to choose to go out and just have good coffee and do what I want to do. Yeah, yeah. Without a mark. Thank you. That's good. Uh, I know you're not, I don't know how active you are on social media, but how, where can people find you and maybe follow your thoughts? So I'm on LinkedIn. You saw what I, I, I sporadically put stuff on LinkedIn every now and again. I'm on Twitter at T Olushola. Okay. L-U-S-H-O-L-A. And I'm on Instagram with the same handle. Oh, great. Uh, that's good. You're, you're very active on social media then, to some extent. Well, I'm not very active. <laughs> I, I have handles. I'm there. I come out every now and again. So, yeah. That's good. It's nice to have you on the show. Really enjoyed talking to you. And there's so many things to unpack from what we discussed. And I'm looking forward to maybe another conversation with you. That would be great. I'm looking forward to it too. And I'm looking forward to hear to replaying this conversation. Yeah, that's good. Thanks for listening to this episode. Before you go, I'd like you to subscribe for this show wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review if you can. You can also follow me on Twitter at drdotun, that is D-R-D-O-T-U-N, or through the website drdotun.com. 